the key issue that comes into place is how organized is the hospital and what kind of systems are in place to train somebody. The really efficient hospitals have good systems that people can come in and learn easily versus somebody having to physically teach them step by step by step. So... Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. This episode is graciously sponsored by Covetris Compounding. Covetris Compounding is proud to provide you and your clients an array of innovative dose forms patient-specific prescriptions, and office use formulations. Welcome back, Positive Leadership listeners. We are very excited for today's guest. Today we have Terry O'Neill. He is a CPA and partner at KSM. He is a CPA and a CVA. And for those of you who aren't quite sure what that is, that is a Certified Valuation Analyst. Thank you so much, Terry, for joining David and I on the show today. We're excited to have you here. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Without having to read your bio, can you tell me about who you are and how you got to be where you are today? Sure. I'm a traditional CPA. And, you know, one of my areas of expertise or specialty that I've really focused on for the last 10 to 15 years has been in the veterinary industry. And so I cut my teeth as a normal CPA working in the Midwest, exposed to a lot of different industries and always gravitated towards the veterinary side of things. Then about a third of the way through my working career, one of my clients was a veterinarian. And at the time he owned three veterinary hospitals and I was a CPA. And he said, hey, have you ever thought about coming and joining a group of hospitals like mine? And I said, sure, and left the CPA world and joined on as a minority partner. At the time, we had three hospitals and then grew it to eight hospitals. And here in the greater Indianapolis area, one of which was 24 hours. So for a three-year period of time, I actually got to work on the other side of the desk, as I like to call it, in the veterinary world, You know, doing everything from answering the phone to cleaning cages, walking dogs, passing surgery instruments that I didn't even know what they were called, just filling in. And that really helped me really get a better understanding of the financial metrics and operational efficiencies. So, you know, with that, I decided to start my practice of being back in the in the world of accounting in 96. Then from that point forward, I always had a portion of my book of business as veterinary and the veterinary side of things. And then a little bit later, I can share with you, you know, a moment in my life that I decided to change that and now I've, I've focused 100% of my efforts 
in the veterinary profession helping them. So hopefully that wasn't too long-winded, but that's just a little bit of background of, of who I am and, and how I got to where I'm at. Perfect. I love to hear the journey and all the curves along the way. It seems like you've been in the profession, at least the veterinary side, for quite a long time and the uh, CPA side for even longer. Can you tell me what your favorite book or podcast, continue education class, or something that has left a lasting effect on you that you could share with our listeners today? Yeah, it's pretty boring, Andrea, but I read a book a couple, a, a number of years ago. If I, if I could share just two books, you know. Of course, the more the better. Boring or not, Terry. <laughs> one book is Who Moved My Cheese? You know, it's great one. Great yes, one. it's a great, great story. And then the other one was Four Disciplines of Execution. I love reading murder mysteries and all kinds of other books along those lines. But I, I think the Four Disciplines probably had the biggest impression on me. At times, I've known to have quite a big to-do list and pretty big aspirations on a lot of different goals that I have. And it really kind of focused me in on you know, what those wildly important goals are, you know, one and two, and to focus on those before you can move on to the next. So that probably had the biggest impact on me. It was such an elementary read, but it had such a profound impact on me. And I still use a lot of those disciplines out of that book on a regular basis. And I I just really would encourage anybody that's not read it to to read it. Fantastic. Thank you. So We wanted to chat with you a little bit about managing labor expense. That's kind of the the focus of today's podcast. And it can be sometimes a little daunting because you've got, you know, hourly salary, DVM production benefits. Like there's all these things that go into that. And we'll we'll keep it pretty high level and and chat kind of generally about how to do that. But the reason why uh, we kind of that inspired us is, um, you know, you obviously you've a prolific writer about different things in veterinary medicine, but there was an article in today's veterinary business, and it's been repurposed on the KSM website from 2019, about kind of five ways to better manage veterinary hospital labor. Great article, I really encourage people to go check that out. So let's just start at the very beginning, you know, why should practice owners or practice managers care? Why is managing labor such an important part of running an efficient and profitable business? Well, thank you for the comments about the article. It's the heartbeat of the hospital. I mean, your your people, the veterinarians and the people supporting the veterinarians is the heartbeat of the hospital. They're the people that provide the medical care, but also the customer service, which are tied directly together. And in, in addition to that, the labor component, the labor benefits and payroll tax component of veterinary hospital financial metrics, that labor component can be 40 to 50% of total revenue. So for I like to always tell people that, you know, for every dollar that comes into the veterinary hospital, literally 40 to 50 cents of that dollar will be spent right away on labor. So managing that labor is mission critical. And I think it's also mission critical for the quality, but then for the customer service side of things, because if your doctors and support staff at a hospital don't provide great customer service, that will be noted and they'll have a profound negative impact on your hospital. Yeah, I would completely agree with you, Terry. That that is a huge bottom line impact. And I love the way that you talk about for every dollar we bring in, right, 40 or 50 cents of that potentially is going to labor. That's mic drop right there to visualize what that looks like. I think that's huge. So let me ask you this. How does having the wrong people in the wrong jobs hurt that labor management and hurt that budget? Yeah, having the wrong people in the wrong positions, they're not going to be able to perform in an efficient manner. And, you know, trying to force people to do things that they're not comfortable or not good at because you have nobody else is going to create 
issues. That's one item. The other item that all hospital managers should be looking at is who's doing what. And having the wrong people do the wrong things could be really financially a negative impact. And an example would be, you know, having a registered veterinary technician wiping down countertops and rooms. You know, that's absolutely huge waste of labor. If they shouldn't be doing that. And, and, you know, given the, the situation that we're all in right now with COVID and trying to recover from that and the demands on the profession, the ability for the doctors and the technicians to leverage their capabilities and their intellectual knowledge of how to treat patients is so vitally important. So putting the right person in to, you know, do the billing or clean the room or whatever it is, is just extremely important. And I can't stress how, how many times we see you know, even doctors sitting there typing up bills or doctors printing off labels for prescription refills, things along those lines that are just, it's just not, a, they do it because they have to and they're team players, but using- It's not efficient. Work, yeah, it's yeah. appropriate. Yeah. yeah, and I always tell, you know, managers when I talk with them, like when you have a technician, let's say a licensed technician and they're mopping the floor or a doctor that's drawing blood, like that technician is the most expensive cleaning person that you will ever pay, right? And that when that doctor's drawing blood, that is the most expensive, you know, doctor doing technician work that you will ever have. Like that's where you come up with, you know, taking that dollar. Now all of a sudden you right. went from 50 cents to 60 cents of that dollar, right? And right. spending the money inappropriately. And it's a it's a waste of company resources. And and so not necessarily even the wrong people and the wrong jobs, but you know, it might be the right person. They're just doing something they shouldn't be doing. And you did comment on this, but sometimes we're just doing it as team players, right? Let's just get caught up and get through this. And it just needs to get done. And it is what it is. And some days, especially through the COVID crisis and employment crisis we're seeing is like, well, guess what? My technician is out today with COVID and I'm going to be doing the, (laughs) you know, the doctor's just like throwing the hands up. Like it is what it is, right? I get that. But on a regular basis, I think in the norm is where we really look at yeah, are you utilizing your technicians, your your doctors, your entire staff? Are you utilizing them properly? Or do you have potentially the right person, but definitely the wrong person in the wrong job and wasting some of those pennies on that dollar? And it is, it's wasting those pennies, right? So yeah, thank you for that. You're welcome. And, and yeah, just, the doctors need to focus on prescribing, diagnosing, and doing surgery, and then mm-hmm. surrounding themselves with a team that will right. supplement yes. the educational component of take-home instructions or the need for certain things, the, the ability mm-hmm. to take histories, et cetera. You know, why doctors don't use scribes, I don't know. Why doctors don't dictate medical records or use templates, I don't know. Just all right. of those things factor in. And I look at, you know, the model that we use at our professional firm where we provide consulting and tax services. You know, we've got a leverage ratio of about nine to one where there's nine people helping every partner. Wow. Why did doctors only have three and a half? And it's all about leverage and, you know, really passing down everything you can do from a leverage standpoint, because I think every single hospital owner that I know would gladly interview and hire another associate to join them and would gladly hire additional RVTs and technician assistants. Excellent. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's a great way to put it, actually, too, and a great way to think about it. When you think about the term leverage, I often think of like debt, right? But the idea is actually that you kind of get more out of something that's smaller. So you've got one doctor, but they can see so much more patients. They can do so many more procedures, X, Y, Z, when you have more people around them. So it actually kind of expands on their ability. So that, that's a great way to, to put it. 
Well, and the other little benefit that we've learned over time is that when you're letting technicians truly be technicians and you're challenging your technicians' assistants to learn and do new things, they're really engaged and they're happy in doing that. So there's an indirect benefit also with that leverage where they really Absolutely. they really get value out of what they're doing in the hospital. Right. Absolutely. That makes sense. So if we kind of exclude, say, salaried labor, but the variable expense, like hourly labor is kind of matched, or it should be theoretically, right, matched to revenue. So if you're a slow practice, you have this many hours. And if you're a super crazy busy practice, you need more staff members to generate that. So you have a really good section of your article talking about how to kind of manage hourly labor through scheduling and how often it should be reviewed. Can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on, so, and the reason why I want to frame this is that as a hiring manager and obviously working with a lot of managers, and I'm sure Andrea knows this too, we often tell the employee what their schedule is, but it's often a round number, right? 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday, nine to five, when in fact, the idea really should be that the business should drive enough business to keep the staff member busy, but really we should be scheduling for hospital need. And so it is unfortunate and there are downturns and all kinds of things happen. And sometimes you might have 37 hours this week. Sometimes you might have 42. And of course the business should work really hard to obviously get the staff members enough hours to pay their bills, but business is a business, right? So tell us a little bit about how you look at scheduling labor for hospital efficiency and operational efficiency, how often managers should actually be reviewing, adjusting, and some metrics they could pull out of a schedule to make sure that it's efficient. Yeah, I mean, we could, I'll try to boil this down into a couple of minutes. We could spend literally, you know, the next two days talking about it because it is a, a simple but complex item to manage. It's the most challenging thing to do in veterinary medicine, at least I think from a managerial. Yes, I would agree. Yes. Managerial standpoint. And you've got a lot of different personalities involved. But with all that being said, I think it comes back to scheduling for the needs of the hospital and then hiring the people to fill those slots. And I always like to, whenever I was doing schedules, I'd look to see when the doctors were seeing patients. And I'll self-confess here that, you know, we used to, our doctors in my previous life didn't see patients from noon to two to catch up and try to get a little lunch. That's what that was for. Well, we always had I didn't know it until we dug in, but we were double staffed from 12 to 2. The morning shift was finishing up and the afternoon shift was coming in, but they weren't seeing any patients. So that was just one example. Like, well, why are these people coming in at noon if their doctor's not going to start seeing patients till 2? And, you know, why are these people, if they're supposed to be getting off at noon, why are they staying till 2? Just simple little questions like that. But we would always look to see, you know, when is the doctor going to be seeing patients? who needs to be here to open, who needs to be here to support the doctor, and really build the schedule around when the doctors are seeing patients. That was probably the most important thing for us to do that helped the most. The other thing that I think is important when filling out a schedule is trying to estimate what the demand for the doctor services are going to be or how many appointment spots are going to be open. And you can do it a couple of different ways. The one good way is to go back to the look at the, you know, if you're going to do the schedule for the first two weeks of February, go back and see what you did last year, the first two weeks of February, you know, adjust if there's any weekend day differentials and adjust if there's more or less doctors. But you can use that kind of as a basis as to, okay, how much revenue did we do? How much do we expect to grow or how many appointment spots do we expect to have? And you can start to back into what you believe that revenue is going to be during that period of time. So we would always look at it that way for the, you know, when the doctor's seeing patients, what we expected from an appointment standpoint, and then what we expected from a revenue standpoint based on that. 
after that was all done, then you simply multiply, you know, let's say we're going to do the first week of February schedule and there's five and a half working days. We would project what we think the revenue is going to be for those five and a half days. We would multiply it times 18% because we want our target non-doctor labor to be at 18%, assuming that we're baking our salaried people in there. Just want to make sure I made mention of that. And then see so your target revenue times your target labor percentage. That's your target labor to spend during that week. Then you divide that by your average hourly rate of pay. And all of a sudden, you now have an hour's budget to work for. And you start to use that to fill the schedule out during the course of the week. I think it's important that all hospital administrators look at their labor burden as a percentage of gross revenue on a weekly basis. I think waiting two weeks is too long. I know some hospitals look at it on a daily basis, whether that's a little overkill or not. It might be, but if they're trying to improve efficiencies, that might be something that they do. And you can simply take, you know, when payroll is done every other week, you can run a report out of the PIM system. What's the revenue? You run your payroll. What was our payroll? What was our non-doctor payroll? I'm not going to get too caught up in the doctor payroll because those are usually contracted amounts that hospital administrators can't change. And you can simply take that and do the quick math and see where your your non-doctor labor was was as a percentage of revenue if you're above or below what your target was. Two other metrics that I think are extremely important to look at are how much revenue is being generated per staff hour. So for every staff member that's on the floor, you take a look at what was the revenue generated versus how many hours were worked. You can do that on a daily basis. And you want to be at about $110 an hour per non-doctor. That's one metric. And then the other metric that I think is really, really important to ripple in also is that we like to look at how many support staff minutes are invested into every invoice that goes out the door. My little pug's name is Frank, Frank the Tank. And so when I take Frank into the veterinary hospital that I go to, you know, and he goes in for his general wellness update appointments, you know, annual visit with the veterinarian, how much time was it invested processing him through the system? The most profitable hospitals that we work with are at about 94 minutes of support staff time per invoice. That's front desk and back desk time invested. And that takes the money out of the equation. That takes percentages of money because a hospital could have high labor because they're not charged enough or vice versa. So this really, the minutes analysis really is an opportunity to look at efficiencies. And quite honestly, sometimes it's not a non-doctor problem. Sometimes it's an issue with the doctor not allowing the staff to help them with leverage and the doctors being too slow, even though they've got a full staff to facilitate more patients per hour. So those are just a couple of the ways that we like to look at it. And you have to be disciplined. And the other thing that I've learned is that most of the veterinary owners that we work with like to be informed on an exception basis so that if they know that their labor target is 18 or their non-doctor labor target is 18 to 20 percent of top line revenue, that once a week, the hospital administrator is providing to the doctor, hey, we were at 19 percent last week. Okay, great. And if it's over that, then we ask the administrators to share with them why and what they're going to do to fix it the next week. So I know that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but it's a pretty robust thing to keep track of, and it can get off the the percentages pretty quickly. So I think that it's the most money the hospital spends every day. So I think you should at a minimum be looking at it weekly. This is great. And I can just tell our listeners are like, pause, rewind, do it again, get out your notebook, take some notes. Like that was fantastic KPIs for us to be looking at and ways that we can, you know, put into practice right away some of those metrics. So 
Fantastic. Great job there. Long-winded, no matter. That was great. Thank you. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about individual staff members and how I'm going to ask a question that I know is going to be rhetorical. Like how expensive is it to lose a staff member, hire somebody new and train them and get them in place, right? Like I hear somewhere around 125% of their annual salary is what it costs. And the reason I ask that is because we could all say it's super expensive. And I, I want you to chime in with your number that you know of. But then follow that up with, shouldn't we be open to negotiating with our top team members and assessing where they are with their compensation to keep and retain them instead of lose them? Absolutely. I kind of have the philosophy. I practice what I preach when it comes to this is that nobody should ever leave any employer based on their compensation and benefit package, period. You know, that you as a business owner, Fantastic. You, have, you have the responsibility to pay market wages. And if you're not willing to do that, you're, you're going to get what you're paying for. So yeah, say it again for the people in the back, right? Amen. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, yeah, that's, that should never be an issue. And it, it should always be an open conversation. And you should never have somebody come to you and say, oh, I got offered $2 more an hour to go down the street or, or something like that. that. That's just incumbent upon ownership and management to always be attuned to that. And, you know, whether it's one times, you know, compensation, I mean, some people argue it takes them two to three months to get up to speed to be a productive member uh, of the team. Um, so it, it can vary widely. I think you could probably argue that the cost of turnover at a minimum is $6,000 and could be as high as, like you had mentioned, up to $40,000 for turnover of staff. It just the key issue that comes into place is how organized is the hospital and what kind of systems are in place to train somebody. The really efficient hospitals have good systems that people can come in and learn easily versus somebody having to physically teach them step by step by step. Yeah, so, yeah. And for the volume and the demand the hospitals are going through right now, that organizational discipline is so vitally important. It reduces stress on staff. And it also provides better customer service and it allows staff members to get up to speed quicker. One of my friends out of Canada, he had a training program. I think it was a 16-week training program for all new hires based on the different positions that he was hiring for. And every four weeks, he made it a big deal at their staff meetings to give them their new pin that they passed their first phase, then their second, their third. And then when they passed their full 16th week of training, then their modified compensation kicked into place. So there was financial incentives for the staff to, to succeed and, and get up to speed and get trained. Love it. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to hear a practice owner who's really taking training by the horns. I think there's, Andrea and I see a lot of, well, let's call it what it is, whining on the veterinary manager boards about we can't find staff and they all have to have experience when we hire them, but we won't train anybody. And that's ludicrous, right? If you've got, and again, you can't necessarily maybe train them in a month to do anesthesia as a technician, but you could certainly train somebody on phone skills or man, you know, doing medical record entry or a sub-Q injection or something you know, in a short amount of time. So right. it's great to hear that. Well, and, and another practice owner that we work with has got a very similar type training program for his associate doctors that he hires. And he lets them know yeah. he hires them at a base salary that's competitive, but he lets them know that his that, that associate doctor's first year out of veterinary school is their fifth year of veterinary school because he's gonna teach uh, he's gonna teach them how to be a veterinary. He knows their bookmark, excellent. but he said, Now I gotta right. teach you how the real world works. And he's oh, that's, that's great. excellent. It, yeah. It's awesome. And and the doctors love it. They're in class four hours a week that he teaches. 
I mean, cool. it, That's he's so got cool. the notebooks and they've got homework and it, it is. Wow. And he's got doctors waiting to come work for him. If that tells you oh, I bet. mentoring I bet. and training. Yeah. And he, he said on average, his second year doctors are able to produce in seven figure ranges. Woo. Yeah, so that's he's an amazing individual, but that's, yeah. that, that's the power of systematizing, organizing, and treating, yeah. and knowing the importance Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So let's channel Scar from The Lion King and be prepared. And we're looking at 2022. The clinic has been, you know, let's say maintaining revenue, been pretty busy. They're still, say, curbside in a, maybe an endemic COVID area. And they've had a couple of staff members who've gotten offers from somewhere else and they've done some raises. And so when I work with practices or budget myself, I bake in not just some growth metrics to kind of take care of just normal inflation. And we know inflation's like out of control. But I look in, I say, what is my savings account for, for raises? But there's got to be a somewhat of a better way to kind of do that to, to figure out what essentially you'd want to pay and then also how it flows essentially in a reverse manner up to the top. Like how much revenue do you need to kind of generate to not only just maintain your bottom line, but, but actually grow it year over year too. So Talk to us a little bit about why, how you like to talk to practice about budgeting from the lens of labor. You know, you'll you'll say something like, for example, put three percent in there or something, but that just probably isn't enough these days, especially with this year and people thinking if they got a three percent raise, inflation is seven percent. They're they're still underwater, right? right? So, what is your approach to budgeting and capturing not only obviously labor but benefits and increases and stuff too, and then kind of mentally doing the the calculus of what you'd have to generate on the top line to keep net income or whatever you want to call it the same or, or even slightly higher as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of spokes to that question, so I'll try my best to kind of dissect that. Uh, yeah, for, <laughs> for from sure. from a perspective of budgeting to address the the elephant in the room and the seven percent inflation we had this year and whether or not we expect that to continue. I think that we as business owners have to be cognizant of that and we have to be willing to to not let somebody go backwards, as you mentioned, if they only got a 4% raise. And, you know, there's a lot of different schools of thought on that. And the one that probably is the, is the most appealing to me is that we need to recognize there was a 7% spike in CPI and that is that permanent or not? We don't know at this point in time. And so a lot of our hospital owners stood with consumer price index increases this last year. So none of the employees went backwards. And the strategy for 2022 is to be in a position, let's say inflation again is expected to be 7%, which I hope it's not in 2022. What we're contemplating doing is that, you know what, we're going to give you a 4% increase in wage but then we're going to give you a bonus of 3% so that we're going to give you the full 7% expected inflation rate. And then we'll revisit it a year from now to see if inflation really was 7%. We're not going to let anybody go backwards. So that's one way you can hedge yourself against, you know, what this inflation may or may not be going forward. The other thing that we like to do is say, okay, what was our revenue? What do we think our increase is going to be? Most hospitals are at capacity. So the only increase in revenue they're going to see is what their price increases are. So we can calculate that, we can calculate where their labor is at, and then we can calculate what we'd like their labor to be at. So you can do the quick math, you can't see me, but we, of course, as accountants have spreadsheets, and anybody that would like these spreadsheets, please feel free to reach out to me and I'll share them, where you, you go in and you calculate, okay, here's the projected revenue, here's what our labor is, here's what our raises are going to be, you know, th this is what we want our labor to be, you then can go through your employee pool and assign 
what raises everybody's going to get so that you can hit your target. So there's a little bit of just simple math associated with that. The other thing that we've been spending a lot of time with is, you know, the inflationary demand on wages and what impact it may or may not have on your fee structure. You know, most hospitals, if not all hospitals, should be adjusting their lab and pharmaceutical costs real time. So if a vendor increases the price, it automatically goes into the PEMS and the price is increased. But for professional services, a lot of hospitals are just bumping those fees up once a year. And we think you need to be a lot more proactive about that. And as you go, once again, we've got a spreadsheet people can use that you can plug your revenue and your your labor and your other key metric of your practice finances in. You plug in how much you expect to give raises to the staff and it'll calculate you know, if you don't raise fees, how much is your bottom line going to go down? And then it goes one step further and asks you to go through and highlight all the different revenue categories the hospital has and whether or not you believe you could raise the fees in those categories. And most of the time, lab and pharmacy is not included. So then it looks at all the other fees and based on what raises you want to give and you wanted to be in a position to maintain or increase your current net income, it tells you what you have to raise the fees and everything else to be. So there's some real good science you can put behind some of these calculations to give the owners confidence that they're doing the right thing for their hospitals. I would love for you to share those spreadsheets. So anybody that wants them, you can find Terry's info in the show notes. Definitely love to have some of that. I'm one of those people that gets a spreadsheet and gets all geeked out on them and goes down the rabbit hole and spreadsheets are my friend. So thank you for that. No, no problem at all. And I've designed them specifically so that people can be very efficient in using them. You talk a little bit about projection and is the CPI going to stay that way? Is our is our inflation going to stay there? Are we going to be in this state of, of panic for a while? And I feel like as an on the employer side of it, almost a noose around my neck with wages, because as this inflation is driving up, employees have to have higher wages in order to sustain this. And we're seeing a lot of these big companies that are raising their minimum wages to $15 and $17 an hour. I was at the In-N-Out the other night with my son and my husband, and their starting rate is $17. And we all know that you know Target is at $15 an hour. So how can we, faced with this pressure, especially during COVID and this staffing crisis we're, we're facing, how do we keep pace with this? How do we find the funds to pay and increase and meet these demands of these ever-increasing wages of our team? Yeah, great question. The Amazon warehouse here in Indianapolis is starting at $20 an hour. So 42 nice. grand a year. 42 That's grand crazy. a year. Yeah. Yeah, it is, but it's the reality. And, you know, we, we as business owners have to be cognizant of it and be prepared that, you know, and we've been able to research and, and follow along with our hospital owners, whether they're in Oregon, California, or New York, where they've seen this minimum wage increase kind of gradually be baked into their economic systems. And the short answer is, is that I think it's a combination of two things. Number one, you have to be cognizant of what your biggest expense on your P&L is, and that as that expense goes up, you need to understand that your fee structure needs to be modified to reflect that. But I always ask people to be cognizant of what efficiency opportunities do you have. You know, maybe maybe your staff is spending 145 minutes per invoice versus the target of maybe 100 minutes per invoice, you know, 
45 minutes per invoice. And if a doctor is seeing 4,000 people, you can do the quick math. There's a heck of an opportunity to improve that labor percentage if your staff is just a little bit more efficient. So I think from an efficiency standpoint, it really, it's a fee standpoint and it's an efficiency standpoint. And it's the leverage model for the doctor if a hospital doctors are only seeing two patients an hour, ask yourself the question, you know, could they see two and a half per hour? And what would that impact be with the same support staff? And it's just the other side of it is is the leverage and the, the advent of, you know, RBT appointments. A lot of hospitals are morphing over to that model more and more where the, where the registered technicians are doing outpatient things that the doctors don't need to block off a half an hour for a recheck on a suture removal. Just little things like that all add up to help on that burden. And, you know, once again, the CPA and consulting world is not immune to that either. We're, we're going through that same dynamic and, and challenge and I'm trying to, you know, how do we figure out to have our staff work 15% less and keep paying them the same? It's, it's all inefficiency um, for us. So mm-hmm. how do we get the same amount of work done with 85% of the time invested? Yeah, it's technology, right. it's, technologies, mm-hmm. it's training, right. it's mentoring. It's, um, there's a lot, a lot of things that go into it. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. So we try to leave our listeners with some pretty actionable stuff uh, on the podcast. You know, we all know that managers are so slammed doing a million things. And sometimes you can listen to a podcast for an hour and think it was great and not know really how to move the needle, right? right? And sometimes, you know, I'm sure this podcast felt a lot like trying to eat an elephant. So Terry, you know, we record these on Fridays, we release them on Wednesdays. And so when this episode drops, you know, for a Thursday for a manager, what is like one or two really good 1% action items that they could start literally tomorrow to better manage their labor expense? That's a great question. I think I would go back to, you know, what are the one or two things you think that, that are going to have the highest impact on your hospital? I'd start with that, whether it's leverage, whether it's scheduling, whether it's the right people, whether it's training, it's kind of an open-ended question. So I think I would that would be number two. Number one, I would really quantify and understand, make sure that the person that's responsible for managing this category truly understands what that labor percentage is as a percentage of gross revenue, making sure that they've got accurate numbers to work off of. Because remember, I said 40 to 50% that included doctors, non-doctors, employee benefits, and payroll taxes. So it's a pretty broad category. If you're just wanting to focus in on the support staff labor or the non-doctor labor, that target is 18%. So really making sure they understand what that target is and making sure they've got good, accurate data to work off of. And the third, which I shouldn't have a third, but setting up a KPI to measure and monitor it because it's not going to change if you don't measure and monitor it. Yeah, I was just going to say, understanding what your KPIs are and then figuring out how you're going to take those metrics and measure them, good data, you don't have good data, then your KPIs are wrong, right? So make sure you have quality data where you can take some KPIs, two, three, four, ten, 10, whatever you can handle, start with one, right? And then go back and look at those and see how they, if you're meeting your goals. So great gems there. Well, thank you. And, and remember that managing labor is the most challenging function of providing veterinary care. Without that, it's the number one most challenging thing. And the profession is being challenged with a lot of other factors right now with burnout and stress and everything else that that goes along with it. So 
you know, I don't know every listener that's going to be a part of this program, but really making an assessment of the hospital and if burnout or stress or something like that is really impacting the hospital, maybe you need to focus on that and get that cured before we can really start to move the needle Mm -hmm. on the efficiency of labor. Yes, agreed. As we start to wrap up the show, I'd like to ask you for one piece of advice that you could give your younger self should your younger self listen, because I know I would not. But one piece of advice to our listeners, what would that be and why? Not to be too simplistic, but to be humble and kind and treat people the way that you'd want to be treated if they were on the other end of a conversation of trying to improve labor. And remember the fact that we all put our shoes on the same way and we're all in the hospital trying to accomplish the same goal regardless of our role. And that the hospital only performs as good as the as the weakest performer. Weakest link, yeah. And, and so I think those are kind of the guiding principles. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but really understanding that dynamic of how to affect change, you've got to you've got to treat people the right way. And if you don't, it's going to cause turnover stress. It's going to cause a lot of negative things. And mm-hmm. so I guess that would be I guess that's my one piece of advice I try to give them. And just also understand that that is very challenging and it will not change overnight. It is a process. It yes. is the, it is like turning an aircraft aircraft carrier around. It's going to take time yeah. and, and people are going to have to get outside their comfort zone. But I will also say it's amazing of what we saw happen during the early stages of COVID when a lot of hospitals went to split shifts where they had half the staff, but they were able to maintain the oh, revenue yeah. they had mm-hmm. before they split the shift. It's like, huh, um, okay. And so I'll leave it at that. I won't go into any more commentary, but... <laughs> You know, it it can be done, put it that way. Yes. Didn't realize how resilient we were and quick to change until COVID happened, right? (laughs) Right. So we've all had those encounters either with a client or an employee or for you, a practice owner, or maybe a practice manager where you're in the midst of something and your eyes pop out like pugs and your palm hits the forehead and you think to yourself like... (laughs) no way this just happened. And these stories are like, in no way could you ever make this shit up. Like no way could never happen. Can you give us from your perspective, your, you can't make this shit up story and and share it with our listeners today. I'll I'll try. Remember I'm an accountant. So (laughs) pretty glamorous life. Well, I, I guess my moment, and I guess in my life, you know, I've been in practice for 34 years. And I had been in practice for about 26 years and, you know, liked what I was doing, was challenged, serving a lot of different industries and um, was going through that, you know, what am I going to do when I grow up moment? And that back in 2012, about 10 years ago. And at that time, about 20% of the work I was doing was exclusive to veterinary medicine and sat down with a mentor of mine and kind of a life coach also, I guess you could call him. And he asked me a simple question. He goes, what do you love doing? And looked at him like, okay, I I love working with veterinarians. He goes, okay, I'll be back in 30 days, write a business plan, and we're going to figure out how you're going to fire every client you've taken you 26 years to get, and you're just going to work with veterinarians. And that was that moment. And and I did that, and I actually stood in front of my partners and told them I was doing that. And after they asked me if I'd been drinking or what I had been doing before I, <laughs> I put this business plan Aren't together. And they said, you're, yeah, they said, what do you mean you're going to build the national veterinary practice? That's nuts. You're not, that's, that's not possible. And right. we stuck to the script. We wrote the strategic plan. We treat it like a business. And it, that was the, oh, 
oh my God, I can't believe this just happened moment. Yeah, by, right. Right. By that one silly little question, what do you do? What do you love mm-hmm. to do? And yeah. that's where that light bulb went off and said, okay, let's give this a shot. And it's the best thing that's ever happened in my professional career. Well, good for you for doing it. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. So tell me about your proudest moment. Oh, without question. It's being a father and a a husband, without question, you know, nobody's ever perfect, but having a good, solid family and watching my children grow up and my my daughter's, you know, a public defender down in in Georgia now, and my son's getting ready to go off to to college next year. So without question, that's the, that by far... Why veterinary medicine? Uh, what do you love about our profession and decided for you to make that your exclusive practice? I love the profession because of the passion and the kindness of the people that work in the profession. I actually wanted to be either an airline pilot or a veterinarian when growing up, but since I wear glasses, they told me I couldn't be a pilot and I didn't do very well in chemistry and biology. So they said veterinary medicine wasn't possible. So this is kind of the next best thing about it. And I just love the profession because of what animals can do for families. And I can't say enough great things about it. I just, I I love working in this profession. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress from uh, work? Exercise and get up every morning at 4.30 and go for a run. That's the way I start every day. And I think I'm 557 days into it now with the little app on the phone. And that just helps, that just starts the day off perfectly for me. The other way I like to decompress is just sit down in the evening and relax and do a little fishing. How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? (laughs) The last two years, I've not done very good at that specific question. So you have to set boundaries. And, you know, I do. I I set time limits just to turn things off in the evenings. And yeah, I think we all have gone through some guilt in that balance. And you just have to learn from it and have to know when to say no and set expectations of when you can get something done. So it's, it's not easy to do, but that's, you know, one of the things that I'm working on. What keeps you up at night, things that stress you out or things that cause you anxiety in your firm? Well, I try not to have stress and anxiety. That's something that I try to really preach to myself because that's not going to impact anything by that. But what keeps me up at night is just, you know, from a standpoint of my practice is our employee satisfaction. You know, are we doing the right things? Are we treating them the right way? Can we be doing better? But then the other thing that keeps me up at night is are the hospitals that we work with and the pressures and stresses that they're going through. And I can see the physical and emotional toll that it's taking on a lot of them over the last couple of years. And, you know, that just that that bothers me. And, you know, we're, we're trying our best to try to help navigate through what the challenges are ahead of them. And we'll continue to try to learn what this new post-COVID world may or may not look like. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? I don't know that I'm excited to get out of bed in the morning, <laughs> full disclosure. I guess just the the ongoing challenge. In my world, I'm challenged on a daily basis with questions and issues and problems of things that there are no answers. And what gets me up, it, you know, is to try to figure out, you know, what the best solution is going to be and how to address it. Terry, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time with us today and sharing all your knowledge and expertise and your resources. Can you give a shout out to your contact information, where we can find you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be a part of your program. And anytime you'd like to talk about anything else, feel free to reach out. You know, probably the best way to get a hold of me is www.ksmcpa.com. 
then backslash veterinary. That's our landing page. That's got all my contact oh, information. It's got a lot of our Perfect. previously written articles. That's the best way. Yeah. Anytime I'm happy to help. I think it's incumbent upon all of us in the profession to give back. Awesome. Thank you, Thank you so much for coming on and have a, have a great weekend. Hey, you too. You too. Thank you. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree David Liss and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.